Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the life starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik. And today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome uh, John Kasman. Hi, John. Hey, Mike. How's it going today? It's going great. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And um, while we start, just tell, tell us a little bit about you, but I'll kind of introduce you. You um, hail from Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, you're the multifamily guy. You got a great multifamily podcast, and you've been a multifamily investor. But we, before we talk about multifamily, could you tell folks a little bit about you? Uh, family, kids, cats, pets? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, I am. Uh, I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, as you mentioned, but I'm born and raised in Cleveland. So I'm a Midwest kid. I lived in Dayton. I've lived in Detroit. I've lived in Chicago. So I've lived all over the Midwest and really like the region. Uh, you know, I've been in Cincinnati for a couple of years now, was in Chicago for eight years prior to that. Uh, married with two boys, uh, you know, great kids who are, you know, young in elementary school, seven and five years old. And part of the reason we moved to Cincinnati was to be closer to family. You know, as uh, you could imagine, being out in a city like Chicago by yourself with no, no family around. Um, you know, we were doing well and all that, but we wanted to be closer to family. So moving to Ohio was really the move we made a, a couple of years ago. And quite frankly, real estate was always a part of the plan to give us that flexibility. Prior to going full-time in real estate, I was in marketing and advertising full-time. So I did that for 15 years. And, you know, in, in, in marketing and advertising in New York, New York's the Mecca for, for advertising, right? Chicago, Miami, LA, there's a handful of cities where you could really work on premier accounts and do big business when it comes to advertising on brands, Detroit as well, in the automotive space. And it wasn't as flexible. I would have needed to live in one of those cities and none of our family lived in those cities. So for us, we had planned on investing to give us more flexibility so we could be closer to family. And that's what got us started down that pathway. And what ultimately ended up happening is I really loved it. I found a passion and I thought I could help other people. So we had been investing for over a decade, starting with kind of a smaller multifamily, two units, three units properties, and eventually scaled up to the point where we do multifamily syndication and work with other investors to buy larger apartment buildings. That's awesome. I really appreciate your story because it's a little bit similar to my story, except for I was in technology. I was technology executive and uh, you spent 15 years in marketing. I spent almost 15 years in technology. And one day we all wake up and we say, hey, uh, I would rather control um, you know, our lives and um, uh, build your business around your family, not the other way around. So I, I totally understand, respect, and appreciate uh, the decision. And the other thing that happens once you start having kids, <laughs> you, you, you need uh, family. It's almost like we don't appreciate our parents enough until we start having our own kids. This is the, the wisdom of, of years. So, so you, that, that's, I guess, what drove you back to Ohio Cincinnati. Now, that's this really awesome. Again, I, I love that whole story. But let's talk a little bit about uh, kind of multifamily investing in, in and uh, feel free to do progression path. So you've, you've started, as you said, with smaller um, multifamily and kind of evolved into 
uh, multifamily, I guess, what, what, what do you do today? Like what's a typical acquisition? What do you like to invest in? What's a sweet spot today versus what it was a few years back? Yeah, so today we're buying, you know, large apartment buildings. We just closed on two properties. Uh, one was an 81 unit, uh, you know, townhome community. Uh, we bought for $8 million. The other was a uh, 104 unit newer construction multifamily class B property that we bought for $12 Where? million. Uh, the first one's in Florence, Kentucky. The second one's in Louisville, Kentucky. So we really like, again, kind of where the, the Midwest meets the Southeast. I think that that's a really sweet spot in the country because it doesn't have all the competition that we see in maybe Texas and Florida, uh, but you still get the same growth trajectory, population. A lot of the fundamentals that are driving people to that region um, work really well. And for folks who like, you know, the Midwest, cash flow, things like that, you get a great balance of cash flow. Uh, while still getting some appreciation in some of these markets. So we do like those areas. And when we started out, you know, I was really, my mm -hmm. wife and I were invested together. So we were buying two to four unit uh, multifamilies. We did do a commercial property, we did an eight unit multifamily property. And what happened for us was this. Part of the reason we knew real estate was the key to scale outside of our day-to-day -day jobs was because we knew it could create passive income. But the reality is, it wasn't really passive. You know, we were doing a lot of the legwork. I was buying these properties. I was the property manager. I had to show the properties. I was the, the maintenance guy. I was the contractor at times. So I wore a lot of different hats. And it wasn't until, you know, one Saturday afternoon, I was at one of the units and I was painting and I was painting all Saturday. And I missed the entire day with my son, right? That's why my oldest kid. And uh, I think he was, you know, maybe just three months old or something like that. But I'm at the, the unit and I'm painting the entire day. You know, I thought this was going to be a quicker job, you know, a couple hours. And, you know, when you really think about all the work that goes into painting the right way, it takes a lot longer than you think for, you know, a three bedroom unit. So um, I spent the entire day painting that unit. And I just remember thinking that, wow, I did this to give myself more time, more control, more flexibility. But really, I just gave myself a second job. So I really have to treat this like a business and be willing to let go of a little bit of the profits so that I could have the time flexibility that I wanted. And that was really important because I don't know if you ever calculated the amount of hours most people work, but if you go from 25 years old to 65 years old, you work 40 hours a week, you will have worked over 9,000 hours in your lifetime, right? Um, it, it's just, it's, it's crazy when you start to really think about the amount of time that you invest. And part of it is how do you get some of that time back? And real estate investing, and a lot of the folks who listen to your show, you get into it so you have more flexibility. Yes, we want to grow our money. Yes, we want to grow our investments. But part of this is to have more control over our lives. And by finding ways to invest passively, you create that control. And that's what we started to pivot towards is, okay, how do we do larger deals? Not just because they're bigger. I mean, I, I don't, the size didn't matter to me, right? Because taking 100% of a small pie or 10% of a large pie, if the money equates to the same, I, I could care less. But that large pie required less of my time and allowed me to do more and more kind of deals. So I could scale that easier than 100% of a smaller deal. And we were waiting to save up the money to do the next deal ourselves. So that was a slow path where you know, I could only do one deal every two years because I need to go save up all the money for the down payment versus on the syndication side, which is where we focus now, we can kind of create a system and process and partner with others and do more and more deals each year. 
Yeah, the words of the wise. Uh, definitely love everything you said because I, I happen to agree with you 100%. It's not just return on investment, it's return on time. And uh, too many times we invest uh, thinking only about ROI, not about ROT, return on time or return on effort, depending on how people you know, mm -hmm. phrase it. So, um, and, and most of us go through that evolution where you go through smaller deals and you're trying to get max, you're trying to maximize return on investment. We are not paying attention to return on time. And that's what happens. Generally, one of the reasons smaller deals, um, not necessarily bad, it's just return on time. It's the same concept you buy a single family. People talk about turnkeys, right? While lovely, you can go buy a bunch of turnkeys. The challenge is it's still, there's, there's, a, there's a job managing those, even though theoretically a passive investor, it's never purely passive. And unless and until you go in an environment where you're generally an LP, a limited partner in a syndication with a great operator and a sponsor, when, then it's really passive. So I'm in agreement with you that over time, gravitating to more passive investments with the great um, operators or sponsors is the key step to uh, achieving truly sort of, let's just call them freedom, uh, freedom of time and freedom of um, uh, decisions and, and not being worried about, am I going to collect the rent or is the rent going to, you know, do I have to do the work physically myself or uh, it's, it's just a, it's purely an investment. So completely in agreement. Let's talk a little bit about how do you build your team? In other words, yeah. when folks are investing either passively or actively, it's different, different hats. If you're an active investor, you generally become sort of the syndicator or the operator. And by the way, uh, Kentucky border, border is a high, right? Kentucky and you, Cincinnati is uh, actually on the border, right? It's pretty close. It, it is. It is. The Florence property I mentioned is actually just on the other side of Cincinnati. So it's very close to us. So do you invest, uh, generally speaking, within uh, a driving distance or you don't care as long as it's a quality asset uh, and you could get a third-party property management company? It could be you know, a flight away. Yeah, we have two really uh, pillars to the way we invest. One are the properties where we are kind of on the lead asset management team. In those properties, we do want them to be within driving distance, typically within two, two and a half hours. Louisville is about an hour and 45 minutes away from me. The property I just mentioned is just on the other side of downtown, so about 40 minutes away from me. We like that range so I can shoot out there, keep my eyes on the property, you know, talk to local groups. I do a ton of networking and a lot of calls with folks. So we have a pretty good sense of who to work with and challenges and things like that in various markets. What I found is that, you know, I used to manage my properties from afar when we first started to scale. I uh, bought a property here in Cincinnati when I lived in Chicago. So I had boots on the ground with family members. But the reality is they didn't understand real estate like that. So I could get them to go look at the property and check on something, but they they couldn't oversee it the way it really needed to be ran. And I felt that um, we really were missing opportunities of, of being better managers. Now, that was a deal that was just me and uh, one other investor, so I wasn't too concerned. But on the same note, we just made it a point to say, if people aren't trusting us with their money. We need to be able to actually oversee these projects. So that's one way we operate. The other way we operate, though, that gives us more flexibility is we do partner with other operators. So if there's deals in markets that are a little outside of that two, two and a half hour radius we mentioned, we like to partner with someone who's got boots on the ground, who is local, who has a team in place, who can be more hands-on and actively managing that. And that gives us a broader array of properties and markets to get into. We like Georgia. We like we do like Texas and Florida. We do like you know the Carolinas. We have investments in those markets, and we do want to continue to grow in some of these other 
other markets where there's strong demand, um, there's great population growth, the fundamentals are there, and we can buy quality assets. You know, if we have a great team in place, we want to make sure we take advantage of that. So that gives us a little bit more variety in the kind of deals that we can offer for investors. So we do like that approach. That's great. Yeah, love your approach. Uh, you, you have a partner feet on the ground. As long as you have good feet in the ground, you can go into that market. Otherwise, it becomes sort of very difficult absentee or well, not absentee owner, but the owner is too far away with no feet in the ground, and it's it's a beast of its own. Uh, but quick question: So, how do you find deals? How do you find yeah. and what's a good deal, especially today? The the whole environment is just so over competitive. A lot of money chasing deals. Uh, so how, how do you like your recent deals? How did you find them? Uh, and what are make what what makes what makes a good multifamily deal? Yeah, let me let me step back real quick. I want to I want to correct something I said earlier, and then come back to your question about what makes a deal and how do we find deals. I mentioned um, you know the if you work from twenty five to sixty five, there'd be nine thousand hours. And in my head, I was like, that does not sound right. So it's not. It's actually over seventy five thousand hours, right? For forty years worth of work, that's seventy five thousand hours. The nine thousand hours is if you focus on creating enough passive income to cut some of those years down. So if you could walk away from that, say five years early you would save about 9,000 hours that you could use to, you know, spend doing whatever it is you want to do with whoever you want to be with. So that's yeah, really the thing. It's a great comment. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to, to, to reflect on this. You have, you read the move, the, the, the book called outliers about 10,000, one of the key yes. points, 10,000 yes, hours, 10,000 hours. 10, hours is 10 years at, at 20 hours a week, right? 50 weeks. Uh, so yes, it, the, the number you mentioned a little bit on the low side, if you compare it to 40 hours a week for a much longer time frame. So no worries. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's just something to think about. I think most people don't think about their life from a macro standpoint, as crazy as it sounds, most people get through the day, right? You get through your day, you get through the week, you've got goals for the month. Maybe you've got some goals for the year, but if I told you, you're going to spend 76,000 hours working, unless you create a plan to cut that number in half or cut it down, you know, most people wouldn't sit there and think about, man, I spent that much time working, you know, the average employee of 1800 hours that you work each year, you know, um, that's what they do as a full time equivalent somewhere between 1800 and 2000 hours is what you work in a given year. Wouldn't you rather be doing something else? So it's just to, to proactively make a decision and actively say, you know what, I need to put my money to work so I can free up some of this time to do other things. That's really the the point that we're trying to drive home is that you can take more control over your life as opposed to just going down this path that many of us are taught in school and business school and things like that. Um, you asked about how we find deals. And I think it's a great thing. It's really competitive right now. And if you are just going to go out there and, and look on MLS or look on LoopNet and expect to find a great opportunity, you're going to be sadly mistaken. So deals are, are not as much found in today's market as much as they are really created. That's going to be through your relationships, your networking, the conversations you have with other owners, conversations you have with brokers, other industry professionals. Those are the things you're going to need to really find unique opportunities. Um, the deal that we did in, um, in Florence, Kentucky, really unique deal because um, I saw it a few years earlier. And when I ran the numbers a couple of years back, the numbers just didn't work. The owners wanted too much money. The property wasn't worth it. And it just didn't make sense to us. Another buyer got it under contract 
and that contract fell through. I think they had a business plan they were going to do that was a little different, and that that business plan fell through. And the property kind of came back around, but this time it wasn't widely marketed. It was more of a conversation with the broker, and he said, well, you know what? There's this other property that's more of a pocket listing. We're not actively marketing it. We're not actively showing it to people, but the owners are still interested in selling. Um, it fell throughout a contract a couple of times, but if you're interested, I could send you some updated information. So we started looking at that opportunity a little bit more. And as we looked at it a second time, one, the numbers look better than they did a couple of years ago. And then two, the market continued to improve. So rents had increased, um, the cap rate had compressed a little bit. So there was more and more demand for a property like this. And there was more and more upside. You know, as we looked at it now, the property looked like it could be a better play. And by the way, we weren't competing with a hundred other people. Now we could just look at it, take our time, figure out what our business plan was going to be, be a little bit creative, but come in and make an offer to get the deal done. So that was one that was a pocket listed for, listing from a broker who had actually had that listing for over a year. It had been under contract once or twice before, and we kind of came back around and created the opportunity there. Yeah, I love it. These are phenomenal comments. So it's funny how all the great deals have similarities. And I've spoken with some of the, we, you know, I don't know if you know, I run a family of funds. So we mostly fund, funds of funds. So we invest with operators. Uh, we're not as active running as ourselves. We're more of a uh, co-GPLP. So I've had conversations with the best of the best uh, folks out there. How do they find good deals? And it's a very similar strategy. Uh, hitting the market today is like pushing a mountain. It's incredibly hard. Uh, everything in the market is too competitive. So you got to go into the off-market sort of deals or the deals that have fallen off uh, a contract. And typically they create a you know little unhappy seller situation and maybe a little more flexible seller. And generally speaking, lightly marketed deals are not actively marketed deals where uh, if you have a relationship with an agent or a broker uh, and you know, performed with them in the past, they may show you one of those deals. And um, the other really interesting element is you cycle back to the same asset again and again a few years later. I've heard that story from some of the top operators. They they almost build relationship with the with the sellers when you're ready to sell. Let's have the conversation rather than uh, competitive uh, deals because those deals are just just they, they get overbid to a ridiculous level. So everything you said makes total sense. Now um, these type of assets, I assume they still have enough value add. So do you execute value add? What is your typical deal want a value add? What kind of rent increases do you look either, you know, in terms of dollars or percentage uh, increase? And then um, the what's a typical deal level IRR that you're looking at on these deals? Uh, what would you like to see if you're going to hold it for four or five years? What kind of return? Um, and obviously some economy of scale. So what's the smallest deal versus the, the ideal deal? Just, just a, yeah, little, I mean, a, I, a little bit more color. It'd be great. I, I think we always start with this notion of, uh, you know, uh, what does a deal look like for the investors we work with? Typically speaking, um, a, a normal business plan or kind of our, our standard business plan approach would be a uh, five-year hold, and we want to deliver a 15% plus IRR 
to investors or a two equity multiple, meaning that if you invest $100,000 at the end of the five-year hold, you're going to make $200,000, right? You get your initial 100 back plus between um, the distributions as well as the the exit profits, you'll get $200,000 in, in total, right? So that's kind of the the going in for, for every deal. We kind of go in and look at it with that lens to say, hey, can we, can we hit our 15-2? Um, where things get a little interesting for us is oftentimes in that when we initially look at a deal, we're not able to deliver that. You know, most deals right now are not able to hit that on the first go. So at that point, what we do is we step back and we say, okay, what's the business plan? You know, or what can we do in our business plan? Let's actually sharpen our knife now and actually look at this. And, and a key for all investors is you have to know what are your negotiables and your non-negotiables. So for us, it starts with the market, understanding where you're at, understanding the type of residents who are going to be living at a property, understanding the class of the asset that you're investing in, because that's going to let you know where you have wiggle room with the rest of your assumptions. You know, can you implement uh, how, how much money can they pay? What's affordability? If you think that you can push rents $300, that's great, but can they actually afford to pay $300 more in rent? In some of these markets, they cannot. So you have to understand a lot of those different things before you really start digging deep into the numbers and formulating a business plan. I mentioned I was in uh, marketing and advertising for 15 years, and this is where that corporate background really comes into play. Because the first thing we do is we look at the business plan, we look at the story, we want to make sure we understand the hypothesis, what's the business case, and then we see if the numbers validate that. you know. And if it's something that we really like, and it's a market we like, we love the story of the property, but we just can't meet their numbers, that's what we can get creative. I think too often, as you mentioned, you know, we have a deal that's on the open market. People try to go get creative as the first thing. You know, they try to figure out how to just pay the amount that the broker's asking for before really understanding the story, the business plan, whether or not the, the business plan can support those kind of rent increases, and then sticking to your numbers. So for us, you got to take all of those things into consideration. So it is a bit of an art as opposed to simply get a deal, underwrite the numbers, write the offer, and walk away. Because as you mentioned, it is a relationship business. And there are people that you're dealing with. You have to understand from, from the broker standpoint, what are they looking for? What's the seller looking for? What's going to motivate them? Uh, what are the other terms? Because sometimes it's not about necessarily just the purchase price. But if you've had a deal that fell out of contract, that seller at this point is more interested in making sure the deal closes than getting the top dollar amount. Because maybe that's the mistake they made the first time. Maybe they had multiple offers and they went with the one that was the highest and then they found something under in due diligence or whatever the case was and it fell out of contract. So now they've learned and they've been somewhat humbled to say, you know what, we actually need to find the most qualified buyer who's actually going to purchase based on, you know, whatever number they put in front of us as opposed to just the highest number. So there's different ways you could package your offer to make it work. So for us, we don't try to get caught up too much on, um, it's got to be this number, it's got to be that. We want to understand the story. What are all the inputs we're dealing with? How did this deal come up? What's most important to the seller? Um, you know, where's the opportunity for us? Where's the market going? Um, what do we see as the opportunity for us to be creative here? And if those things line up and we can make a strong offer, we'll try to move forward and make that happen. Yeah, great wisdom. Non-negotiables. So what are the things that you would negotiate and what are the typical negotiables. And by the way, everything you said makes total sense. 
love that it's not a black and white uh, type of story. It's always multidimensional. It's always it's always got a little color. It's always got a little little different angle. So the decision is not purely based on the return. There's so many other things that really matter. For example, is this a great location? Is this an asset you want to own for long term? Even if the numbers are great, but it's not the type of asset that you want to own for multiple years, then maybe that's a non-negotiable. That's not starter, right? So just curious, what are your non-negotiables and what are your negotiables? Um, so just would love to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, right now, and I think the the economy has to come into this a little bit as well, right? You have to be paying attention to what's happening in the economy. And for us, uh, one of the non-negotiables is location. Um, we love B-class assets. We're happy to go into A-class type neighborhoods. But right now for C-class neighborhoods, not necessarily the asset, but C-class neighborhoods, um, that's not something we're investing in today. And the reason for us is simple. Um, between the moratoriums and the ability to ha- keep keep um, our, our uh, business affordable as far as rents and the rental increases, we feel that there's a greater upside in B and A type properties and neighborhoods. We also look at cap rate compression and not to get too technical, but think about it like this. Um, let's say you're looking to buy a brand new Cadillac, right? And or, or Cadillac for you. Okay. You could get a five-year-old Cadillac for $55,000. You could get a 10-year-old Cadillac for $52,000, or you could get a brand new 2022 model Cadillac for $60,000. At a certain point, the differences in those prices, it's so compressed that you'd rather just pay more money and get the newer model. You know, if for $8,000, I get something that's brand new as opposed to $8,000 less, I got a 10-year-old vehicle, well, give me the brand new one. I'll just pay the $8,000 more, right? And that's starting to come into the thinking here. You know, it's not that we want to be in class A luxury, uh, but if a 1965 built, you know, apartment complex is selling at a 4.8 cap rate and a brand new, you know, property is selling at a 4.5 cap rate, at a certain point, it just makes more sense to get the newer property because as those cap rates expand, if the market goes into the future and the demand isn't as strong as it is today, I'd rather have a better asset. So for us, the balance is we don't necessarily invest in class A luxury stuff. So finding newer assets that aren't luxury is a bit of a challenge. So the last deal we actually just did uh, last month, we loved it because it, it fit that. It's like a unicorn to get a 2019 built property that's actually class B. So it could still be affordable. We could still push rents a hundred bucks. We could still do a light to medium value add play. That's really hard to find. Most of the time what you're seeing is people buying brand new luxury and really their business plan is hope the market continues to do well. And in this case where we can have a play to to add a little bit of value and to continue to push rents and push the market and get it where it needs to be, that was really appealing to us. So I think the market is the first thing that is a non-negotiable for us. And it has more to do with where we're at in the economy today. And, And the other piece that comes with the economy is the labor side of things you know, those C-class properties are a bit more labor intensive and having the right property managers, maintenance crews, um, that's really important. And it's harder and harder to find those people and to retain those people. And you got to pay these people a little bit more than you had to pay them maybe two, three years ago. So we're finding that in our execution of our business plans, it's helpful to be in areas that are a little bit more desirable, uh, places where people want to live, not necessarily high-end luxury stuff, but places where people have no problem living, 
great workforce development, uh, maybe a, a notch above that, that's making it a little bit easier for us to find deals and opportunities and create value. Um, again, sometimes on the lower end of the spectrum, there's only so much somebody can, can pay, yet alone is willing to pay. There's only so much they can afford to pay. And on the higher end of the spectrum, there's a certain level of service that is anticipated that may be difficult to, to live up to. But in that B-class space, I think you have a nice sweet spot of, of finding the right balance for what, you, what you're looking for in your business. Yeah, very interesting uh, and colorful and uh, brilliant comments. Um, happen to agree with you, easier to manage assets, so higher quality. Uh, obviously, the ideal dream is A area, B asset, uh, or you, you buy new, relatively new construction and you, you, your work uh, to, you know, to manage the asset is fairly light. But how, how do you still create enough return for investors? Because it, it's, it's almost like, um, and I know we're running out of time, just a couple more thoughts. Uh, one of the biggest challenges is that you know we've seen you can buy new newly constructed product. So sometimes you invest, and we invest in different phases of a life cycle. Then you invest in the construction phase, and then you exit uh, on completion, and then let somebody else take it through lease up. Or sometimes you stabilize it uh, and then sell it. Stabilize at that point. If you come in and you buy it, your value add is very very small. And it's almost fascinating. I literally literally just saw a deal we've invested in a few years back. And it's being marketed on, I think, realtymogul.com. We invested in the early. We know we did really well in the deal. But now they are marketing the deal to, with, to investors with very similar economics, as you said, 15 or 16% IRR. But it's been done. It's been value-added. And um, somehow the sponsor is raising some of the money on Realty Mogul. And they still are able to make it look to, to investors as 15 16% return. We know it's a good asset. I, I, I struggle with the numbers. It just is it just assumption of the continuous inflation, or uh, there's something there? Because we know the price we're selling it at is a good price for us as the sellers. How that the buyers are still able to look at the deal and get 15, 16% ARR to LPs plus the GP spread. I'm just a little shocked, but it's a game of numbers. People are able to put, I don't want to call it lipstick on a pig, but more like you know, lipstick on something that's not as pretty, but somehow make it look like a model. Yeah, I, I think it's a fair push, right? And fair question to ask in this market is like, as a limited partner investor, how do you discern, you know, where the upside potential actually is? And this is why I think the, the backstory is really important and understanding the business plan and not just, we're going to increase rents by 10% or a hundred dollars, whatever. So, I mean, part of it for me is I want to look at comps. What's in the marketplace right now that demonstrates that you actually can push rents to this level? Because if we can't see, you know, if we can't see uh, those comps in the marketplace today, that's that's a bit of a red flag, you know. Because if you're just assuming you can increase rents ten percent or seven percent each year, well, that's going to be a hard sale. So I think you obviously want to look at what are those assumptions that are going into the underwriting, and then also you know, is there proof in this business plan, or at least proof points, you know, it's, you, it, none of us can predict the market, but you want to be able to point to other properties that are getting the kind of rents you expect to get and say, hey, these two or three properties are getting these kind of rents. Here's what they have that we are missing. If we get this property to look more like that property, it's realistic to think that we should be able to achieve similar rents. So, you know, sometimes this is not, super complex, 
but it does take a minute to sit there and identify the opportunities. I will say that I've seen a lot of deals where I could not find how value is going to be created. So we've passed on those opportunities. Um, but I think it's an important question to ask if that's the plan. If it's not the plan and you have something that's more stabilized and it's good cash flow and property and there's not a whole lot of room to, to push rent, then I think you have to say, okay, well, what are the return expectations? Because return should be a measure of risk. And if this deal has less risk because it's already stable, then you should expect lower returns. And that should be reflected in the numbers and the assumptions. So if it's not, that's when I have some questions for that operator. So, I mean, sometimes the truth of the matter is you may only be at a 14% return and some investors may, may not be comfortable with that. They want 16 or 17% IRR. Um, but I would say that and I think there's more risk in that. And some folks at a certain point, it doesn't matter. Um, but for some folks, it does. And if you're at a place where you're trying to protect your capital, um, you've got to balance how much risk you're looking for uh, in a deal. So I, I think it comes down to the deal specifically, um, the operator, just their, their approach, the way they think about it, um, the market they're in. Because again, if you're in a market that is up and down and when it's hot, it's hot and it's down, it's down. Um, Think about markets that are heavy in tourism, as an example. Um, you know, if you go back to the last economic downturn, you go back to 2009, which markets suffered the most during that time period? Which ones bounced back the fastest? You know, I think you have to understand the underlying principles so you can make the right decisions. Because otherwise, it's easy to just look at it and say, hey, last year this market was up 20%. Uh, so we're going to do it again and expect the market to continue humming. But you know, you can't bank on those things all the time. So I, I think focus on the fundamentals is the key. Downside protection is what we focus on first and foremost. And then we go on upside. And that, that also goes back to why we like the markets we do. You know, markets like Louisville, Kentucky and Cincinnati, Ohio, they never get too high up, but they also don't get too far down either. I mean, they're pretty stable markets that are blue collar. They, they work hard. People work there. They're built on transportation and logistics and, you know, have pretty diverse industries. So we like that component versus something that is heavily driven by tourism or, you know, um, um, just, just things that tend to go down when the economy goes down. So I think it's really important to make sure you're thinking about that when you are selecting the types of investments you want to make. Yeah, great points. You touched on some of the, one of my most favorite uh, just general discussion points, risk-adjusted returns. Uh, just too many investors don't understand the principles. They only look at the top line, the bright and shiny objects, the top level projected returns, but how conservative the underwriting is and what's the downside protection. Like these, these are the holy, holy grail questions we do as part of what we do day in and day out. Uh, and uh, absolutely love how you presented these points. So make total sense. And um, one of the most fundamental uh, uh, metrics or, or, or variables that uh, drives all the underwriting is what you said, the rent support or the current rents in similar property support that you project in the future. And that is something that's been, um, I mean, that, that drives so many uh, results so, so, that those inputs and having high quality confidence in those projections can make or break a deal. We've got deals now where the pro forma rents are being beaten substantially. Let's just call it inflation. Let's just call it good execution. And the reverse is true. If you've gotten aggressive and you've uh, not able to perform and 
the market right now is saving, is lifting all the boats, right? It's just inflation is lifting all the boats and um, even bad decisions and bad risk-adjusted uh, return targets are all being sort of saved by the bell, by, by what's happening with the market. So the, the, the word of caution uh, to, to the listeners is uh, that uh, things may not continue. The past results don't uh, guarantee future performance. Not only do they don't guarantee, they're not indicative of future performance, especially in the last few years, because the uh, inflation has been running at a pretty high pace. And uh, if this will continue, then a lot of these deals will do better than projected because real estate leverage deals do well in the inflationary environment. But if economy stalls and inflation uh, slows down, we hit some kind of a correction, then uh, aggressive underwriting is going to be incredibly painful because, um, um, yeah, and then obviously market selection is a key. Yeah, the yo-yo markets are very uh, higher risk and, and the steady eddy markets, which is Midwest, is absolutely feel safer, especially what's really interesting now, and then we, you know, we've probably got to wrap up, is um, just just job creation. I mean, it's just what's happening in a given area. Our employers are moving in. And that's probably the, the safest way to look at the, if a given area is going through substantial development, Amazon is building a warehouse and so on and so forth, can make all the difference in the world. Almost like you don't even have the, the comp supporting it, but the fundamentals are there. Like you said, the, that market is just doing well and growing and the rents may, may catch up when they're ready to catch up. So final parting thoughts, um, love having you as a guest. Awesome, awesome comments. Um, how would folks get a hold of you? Uh, and you know, any final wisdom, a good book to read? Uh, yeah. Any, any, any well, a couple of things. First of all, um, you know, if you if you like this and you want to learn more about multifamily investing, um, we've got a podcast called Multifamily Insights. It's the number one rated multifamily podcast. You can check it out anywhere you listen to shows. Uh, we also have a sample deal package on our website at kasmancapital.com slash sample deal. There you can just, you know, get a sense of different terms and things like that that we put into a sample deal. It's not a real deal, something that I just, you know, cobbled together from a couple of deals I was looking at that are on a smaller side. But I think it gives you a good sense of the kind of information we talked about, jobs, job growth, the market. If you really want to see the kind of data points you want to be looking for, you can check that out. So it's a really good resource there. And outside of that, if you want to learn more about investing with us or just have questions on multifamily investing or the way we look at the market, shoot me an email. My email is john at jasminecapital.com and um, just put, you know, a uh, big Mike or tempo growth in the, the subject line. So I know you heard us here on this show and I'd be happy to talk to you a little bit more. Thank you, John, very much uh, for sharing. Thank you for coming on the podcast. We'd love to come you back in a little bit. We'll, we'll come back and we'll chat about uh, what happens maybe in a few months again. So thank you. Absolutely. Mike, thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.